Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 9, Part 2, From Evidence Not Seen, A Woman's Miraculous Faith in the Jungles of World War II, by Darlene Dibbler-Rose. Chapter 9, Part 2. Blankets weren't the only thing in short supply. With an average of one comb to nine people and head lice on the increase, Ruth and I decided that the wisest course was to cut our hair off short. Ruth had her scissors, so she cut mine, and I cut hers. Most of the women were detailed to work in the garden and the old camp kitchen. The chickens and pigs had been incinerated by the fire. We dared not eat the pigs because of the gasoline jelly. Otherwise, that would have been quite a barbecue. The planes returned three days later to bomb the old camp with shrapnel bombs in an attempt to destroy all the stone houses and the Japanese headquarters. We hid during the bombing among the trees near our hut. As it was growing dark the following evening, Sweet Seventeen came to say that Commander Yamajai wanted me to come. I ran across the rice field to the old camp, arriving in time to see a car pulling away from the headquarters. Word had come from Makassar to say that Freddy had passed away and would be brought in the following day. They had exercised the leg completely, but the gasoline jelly had eaten into the intestines, so it was impossible for them to save him. I want you to tell Junjai Powell you have received similar news, and you will know how to help her as you have been helped. The teacher is still in the hospital. They took her leg off above the knee in order to save the thigh, but they couldn't save Sinjo. Master, you will tell her? I assured him I would, though I had never done anything like this before, and I will pray with her and her the sister, for it is God alone who can help a person in a time like this. It will be very difficult for Ninjunja Paul. Freddy was her only son. I understand, but you will know how to help her. He will be brought in tomorrow. Then you can tell her. He bowed to me and said, Good night. Thank you, Ninjunja. I returned his bow and left, wondering what I would say when they asked me what the commander had wanted. Freddy was the apple of Sira's eye. What could I say to help ease the pain? How sad, and for sad for all the family. It was a fairly long walk across the rice field to our jungle camp. When I arrived at the hut, everyone was sleeping, so I felt it best not to awaken them for devotions. I found my place near the door, next to Ruth, but I couldn't sleep from thinking of Sira and Dolly's anguish. Suddenly, the sound of the air raid alarm and the distant hum of approaching aircraft startled everyone into wakefulness. Pandemonium broke out, children and mothers crying out, trying to find one another in the dark. A traffic jam occurred as they all tried to exit simultaneously through the small, one and only door. I checked to make sure everyone was out of the hut, then groped my way with others from tree to tree, seeking a place to shelter away from the bamboo buildings. The stingian darkness enhanced the awful fear that made our 
pulses race and our throats feel dry. We knew that the planes would soon be directly overhead. Was our new camp the target? What kind of bombs would they use? Facing death again, we committed ourselves into his care. None was ashamed to pray for mercy. With bated breath, we waited to hear the whistling of the bombs. Then, miracle of miracles, the planes passed us by. Or were they checking the location of the jungle camp? No, they continued on toward the west. Just as fervently as we had prayed for mercy, expressions of thankfulness were voiced unashamedly to God. The raid took place on a Japanese airfield and encampment not far from us. No one moved until the planes could no longer be heard and the all-clear was sounded. Then we made our way back to the hut. As I took roll call to make sure no one was missing, discussion began at the other end of the hut. Finally, one of the women called out, Mervro Dibbler, we need to talk to you. Every night during devotions, you've prayed to, that God wouldn't allow the planes to come, especially for the sake of our children, and it's so difficult to find a place of shelter during the dark of the moon, and the planes have not come, but tonight you weren't here for devotions. The planes came. If you, you're called to the headquarters again, we want you to know. We don't care what time it is when you return. Please waken us so that you can pray with us that the planes will not come. I never had to waken them. They were always waiting for me. Never again did we have a night raid or even the sound of approaching planes to disturb our sleep. I missed Syria uh, while collecting porridge the following morning. As soon as I had finished sorting out work details, I went in search of her. I met her returning from the vegetable garden and uh, fell to or fell in beside her, slowing my pace to allow others of the garden detail to get ahead of us. When I placed my hand on her arm and stopped, I saw the color drain from her face. Oh God, my heart was crying. Give me the right words to say. Then as gently as I knew how, I told her about Freddy. She reached for my hands, and neither of us could restrain the tears. Sarah, I'm so very sorry for you and Dolly. I'm sorry for all of us. Freddy will be missed. I do understand your grief. Believe me, I do. I held her, and we prayed until a quietness, a peace, and an acceptance of his will gave us the strength to go back to the shack at her request. I told Dolly and the others about Freddy's death lovingly and quietly. The people surrounded Sira and Dolly to share their sorrow. It was very hard for the young people to accept that Freddy was gone. They had been a close-knit uh, group, and unashamedly they cried for the death of their friend. We went as a group to the head to headquarters to wait for the ambulance that was to bring Freddy back. I suggested to Sira that I be allowed to keep the wake that night, as she and Dolly would need their rest. She agreed, knowing that Dolly wouldn't go back to the hut alone. When the ambulance arrived, Freddy was carried into the commander's office and laid on a bamboo bed, made ready by Mr. Yamajai. 
Sira and Dolly went inside while we who had accompanied them waited outside. Finally, Sira came to the door to nod that it was all right for us to come in. Silently, we mourned with them. The lower part of Freddy's body was covered with a sheet. He looked very peaceful, and I was grateful that his face didn't show how much, how very much he must have suffered. With an embrace or a word of sympathy to Sarah and Dolly, the various ones took their leaves or their leave. I whispered to Sarah that I would be back to relieve her and Dolly as soon as devotions were finished. She nodded and I left, knowing that those closest to her and Dolly wouldn't leave until I returned. Once I was alone with Freddy for my vigil, I set a chair near the head of the bed. A small oil lamp had been left burning. It was a night for thinking and listening. I had never been alone in this close before to a person who had passed away. I turned the chair so that I could look at Freddy's face. Then the words of a very wise man came to me, and the voice of memory spoke. There is a time to be born and a time to die. Ecclesiastes 3.2 Both are times accompanied by pain. The pain of giving birth mingled with the exquisite joy that a child has been born, and the pain of death mingled with the bitter dregs of sorrow that a child has died. Sarah's joy and pride in her son had turned to pain and a great sense of loss. I thought about Freddy as he had been, a tall, handsome young man of fine physique, anticipating a happy life. When the world war is over, I wondered if he had lived, could he have coped with the loss of his limb, or might the loss have left him bitter and psychologically as well as physically crippled? God alone knows, and in his infinite wisdom he had taken Freddy, who was so young, while many who had lived well and long were still among us. I only know that my Lord makes no mistakes. I wept in my own lonely aloneness, remembering another day and another year when I had lifted the cup of sorrow to my lips and drunk my portion of the bitter dregs. But in the dark hours of that night, he came to me, the author of life, to remind me of his words. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 11:25. Once more, peace and comfort, like a mighty river, flowed, fl or flooded my soul. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? 1 Corinthians 15:55. I prayed for Freddy's father in Pari Pari, wondering if it would be months before he learned of his own only son's death. I thought also of other bereaved families whose husbands, fathers, and brothers had yet to learn of their losses. When the first streaks of dawn lightened the sky, I looked up to see Mr. Yamajai standing in the doorway. Njunja, you go. I will watch. I nodded and left, praying that God would bring to his remembrance our discussion of two years ago concerning death, sorrow, hope, and life everlasting. Few of us will forget the memorial service held in the open field in the northeast corner of the old camp. It was appropriately 
conducted by the Catholic priest and the Protestant Domini, the commander and the second in command attended in full dress uniform the service over we filed silently past the coffins draped in white cloth the victims of the bombing were buried alongside our earlier dead the line of simple mounds lengthened the starkness of bare earth soon to be softened in green a strange stillness pervaded our jungle camp it was like a breathless waiting but for what we didn't know we remembered the bombing raids of the previous year the months of miserable nights spent in the rain in the muddy slit trenches after months of air raids they had ceased so we had relaxed and dared to entertain the hope that peace talks were in progress and the end of our imprisonment was imminent then a year later we had found ourselves in the midst of a re repeat performance months of day and night bombings around our camp nights in the trenches shivering in the rain but there the similarity ceased our camp a camp of women and children had become the target for bombing raids not just once but twice targeted for total destruction why was it to destroy a workforce used by the Japanese, or were we just expendable? We buried our dead, and were then set to the onerous task of stacking the canisters from the incendiary bombs and cleaning up the old campsite. The stinking mud of the gardens aggravated our tropical ulcers. Our eyes searched the sky for approaching planes. We noted the nearest trenches as we moved about the camp to know where to run in case of another bombing raid. The doctors and nursing staff, with those of the sick who were not ambulatory, uh, were re-established in the damaged hospital. It was near the commander's bomb shelter. The planes were no longer coming over the camp. But there were, was daily activity to the north of us of, of it. We wondered if Perry Perry was being bombed. We were greatly concerned for the men, and nightly our prayers encompassed them with petitions for their safety. We wondered if our camp was to be relocated, or would we be left in that dreadful jungle camp? A terrible apathy settled upon us, animated speculation about after the war or when I'm free, was no longer heard. Even the children were listless. We had no illusions about being left ladies of leisure. However, contemplation about the future was debilitating. To make morale worse, the grass roof was leaking, so restless nights followed rainy days. Most of us had no change of clothing. We worked in our one set of clothes we bathed in them in the rain without soap and drip dried or not we slept in them lord we need some kind of diversion we're becoming a tribe of zombies the diversion came it came in the form of a very large monitor lizard the young people saw it one morning and were trying to corner it under our shack they had armed themselves with clubs and were yelling to us women inside 
Can't you see him? Oh yes, we had no trouble seeing through the slated do uh, floor the drama that was taking place under us. The lizard had lifted himself high on his legs. His mouth was open and the tongue was darting back and forth as he hissed, showing very sharp teeth. He was looking to see if he could break through the floor. When the clubs were thrown at him from one side, he raced to the other end of the building, trying to escape. We fled to the opposite end of the hut to escape the teeth tearing at the bamboo and rattan. The lizard would follow us, and we'd scream, He's here! He's here! As we jumped up and down, trying to keep our feet from being bitten, clubs were flying from all sides. The children were yelling as they wriggled under the shed to retrieve their clubs. We women screamed and yelled and laughed while running from one end of the shed to the other in a pack, thinking what a marvelous addition he would make to our rice and vegetables. Lizard Tail is very good eating at that time, what wouldn't be very good eating. But alas, while the children shifted, retrieving their clubs, the lizard made good his escape from under the house and headed for the jungle with amazing speed. We darted outside and grabbed up clubs to join the chase, racing through the trees, sidestepping some of the large ferns and dodging the uh, hanging vines. We followed on, yelling encouragement to those in front of us. The children finally gave up, admitting defeat. We drifted back to the shack and threw ourselves on the floor, winded, but still laughing, as each related his or her part in the battle with the monster. Growing quiet, we sat up, looking at one another, and smiled. How good the excitement, the yelling, the laughter, the releasing of pent-up emotions had been. For a half hour or so, we had become savages, intent on food, exhilarated by the chase, enabled for a moment of time to forget the horrors we had experienced during the past weeks and the familiar drudgery of today and tomorrow. Soon the commander brought in native laborers to begin construction of a new schoolhouse on the old campsite. One early afternoon, Corvoxiel came to say that all barracks leaders were asked to assemble in the partially completed building. Mr. Yamajai had an announcement to make. Entering the building, we found Mrs. Justra standing in front of Mr. Yamajai when he said, Nanjunja uh, Justra is no longer head of the camp. Nanjunja Dibbler is now the head. A shockwave went through the building that left us speechless. I couldn't believe what I had heard, nor could the others. I still st or stood dumbfounded. Recovering, I gasped. Oh no, Tanan, I couldn't take Njunja Justra's place. I don't know enough about running a camp like this. Before he could reply, one of the other barracks leaders broke in, complaining that I was much too young, and one of them should have been chosen. I felt grateful for their protestations. I sincerely didn't want the position. Mr. Yamajai was angry at the uproar. His cane came down on one of the desks with a terrible crash, and there was instant silence. Enough! Do you understand? 
I have said that Najanja Dibbler is the new head of the camp. Turning on his heel, he left. When he was out of earsight, I felt as if I were surrounded by a pack of jackals. How could you? You're only a girl. We're older and more experienced. Please listen to me. I didn't know anything about this. I did not ask for the job. I do not want to take Mrs. Justra's place, and I'm going to tell Mr. Yamajai so now. I couldn't help but notice that none of them was protesting that Mrs. Jostra shouldn't be replaced. I saw Mrs. Jostra leaving the building, so I ran to catch up with her. Mrs. Jostra, I'm so sorry. You're such a good camp leader. I could never fill your place. Yes, Mivro Dibbler, you can. You have been a good uh, Lodster barracks leader, and I've talked with the commander about this. I asked to be relieved. Mivro Dibbler, I'm so tired. I'll give you all the help I can, but you can do it. Mr. Yamajai is, has great respect for you and holds you high in, in high regard. He said that you were trustworthy. If you say yes, you meant yes. If you said no, you meant no. You may count on my support. She looked so weary as she shook my hand that I could say no more. Hurrying back to the jungle camp, I prayed for wisdom. I wanted to tell Ruth, Lillian, and Margaret what had happened. I needed their advice. I found Ruth sitting in the doorway in the sun. Ruth, listen. Mr. Yamajai has just announced that he has made me head of the camp. Before I could tell her what had happened, she said, I've been expecting that. Ruth, you're no help. Why would you say that? Because he respects you. But Ruth, some of the other barracks leaders are angry. They don't seem to understand that I had nothing to do with Mr. Yamajai's decision, nor did I know anything about it. I really don't want the job. Some of the others who had gathered said that Ruth was right. Didn't I know that after the Kempitiai had taken Margaret, Philoma, and me away, the commander would angrily jump on his bicycle and go out the back way to the a village whenever the Kempitiai car was seen approaching? He wouldn't return until he was sure they had left. No. I didn't know that. Another lady who worked around the office told us that when the Kempetii left a note for Mr. Yamajai stating that Najanja Dibbler was dying of tuberculosis and would never be returned to the camp, Mr. Yamajai left from Makassar at once. He spent three days going from office to office before he finally received permission to enter the prison and see me. The women not only from my barracks, but from other barracks, and the Ambon camp as well, continued to gather and to encourage me to accept the position. I still had reservations in my own mind. Brace yourself. The opposition approaches, someone said. It was indeed the leader of the ones who had verbally attacked me in the classroom. As the crowd continued to gather, Mrs. Hayden, red-faced, hair and Stringy disarray proceeded to tell the gathering how unsuited I was for the position. I was much too young. 
Furthermore, this is a Dutch camp, and we will not have a American to rule over us. The eight Dutch families of the barracks were ready to cross swords with her. They were in my barracks at their own request, and we appreciated them. The ridiculous side of the whole fiasco struck me as being very funny, and it took some restraint not to call out to her as she flung herself around and stomped off. You better be careful, Mivro, or your sheaves will be bowing down to my sheaf. One of the women pointed out uh, what was all too apparent. It wasn't that I was uh, too young or that I was an American. Mrs. Hayden was jealous and wanted to position. I don't know who told Mrs. Jastra about the woman's diatribe in front of the other women, but she came a short while later to say that she had heard about it and that she and the other women had been friends for a long time. But I told her that if she did not apologize to you publicly before the end of the afternoon, we would no longer, uh, we were no longer friends, and I would never speak to her again. I will be back to find out if she has apologized to you. I was very sad to think that a friendship might be broken over so small a matter. About an hour later, the women, the woman arrived, very humiliated and agitated, to say that she was sorry for the things she had said, that she knew I had had nothing to do with the commander's appointment or appointing me as Mrs. Joster's successor. Nor did it really matter that I was the youngest of the Lodes Lidsters, or that I was an American, since I spoke Dutch as well as Indonesian. I'm sure it was a very difficult thing to do, and I was glad she valued Mrs. Justra's friendship that much. After an, all the clamor was forgotten, and things had returned to normal, I felt it was a preposterous time to talk to Mr. Yamajai. I thanked him for the honor he had done me in appointing me as head of the camp. Then I suggested that, since the majority of women in the camp were Dutch, it might be well to have a Dutch person in the place of leadership. He asked if I had someone in mind. Yes, I do. Najanja Barstra of the Ambon camp she is physically well and a strong person, and I'm sure she will. She would deal fairly with everyone, as Nanjanja Justra has done. Have you talked to her? No, Tuan. I wouldn't talk to her until I had asked your permission. If it's all right, I'll go speak to her now. He was quiet, looking off into the distance as if deep in thought. Finally, he answered. All right, you talk to her to see if she agrees, but I'll need you later. I ran to find Annie Barstra, puzzling about the meaning of this last statement. I'll need you later, Annie requested, and I was grateful. So much had happened in recent weeks. I opened the drawer of my memory and laid Jan July 1945 on top of all the other months and years of my imprisonment. Someday, Father, we'll look at it again, you and I. Until then, know that I 
have no complaints to make. There's so much I don't understand, but my heart tells me you do all things well. We moved into August, the eighth month of our fourth year of captivity. The school was complete and in use. Our repairs on the old sewing room were in progress. Sewing machines were being serviced, and work would probably begin there in a week or so. Undoubtedly, the Japanese were in need of new uniforms. That explains why they were they are setting up the sewing room again, we concluded. Would the Japanese be replacing the barracks? No materials had been stockpiled as yet. Whatever they built would certainly be an improvement over the jungle camp, not to mention the added convenience of being closer to the wells and latrines, which now had scanty walls around them. Late one afternoon, after fi filling hospital vats, I was making my way to the well to draw water for bathing when three ladies approached me. They looked about to make sure we weren't being observed. Then one of them asked, Mervo Dibbler, who is Truman? Truman? Truman who? I don't know anyone by that name. He's President of the United States, she whispered. Oh, him. He's our Vice President, Harry Truman, from Missouri. Our President is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. President Roosevelt is dead, and this Truman is now our President. Hadn't you heard? I was stunned by this news. No, I hadn't heard. I knew Truman was Vice President, but had never heard much about him. Thank you, I whispered and hurried on to the well. I didn't want to know who or when or where. What you don't know cannot be beaten out of you. The brain's face loomed large in front of me. I could feel the pain of his crushing my arm and hear him saying, If you ever have contact with anyone outside this camp, I'll get you. If you ever tell anyone about what happened to you, I'll get you the next time. As they turned to go, one of the women mouthed pamphlet from outside. Terror made my pulse race. I hurried with my bath, all the while praying that God would protect me from the involvement uh, with this pamphlet and protest, protect all the women in the camp from the competitive. Stepping outside, I looked all around. There was no one in sight. I walked quickly back to the jungle camp, quoting aloud the 27th Psalm. When we were alone, I shared the news with Lillian, Margaret, and Ruth. Nothing more was said until it was apparent that it was common knowledge that someone had gotten a pamphlet from a source outside the camp. Material arrived for the sewing room, but it was not material for Japanese uniforms, nor was it the coarse navy blue material used for our work suits. Someone had taken notice of the uh, threadbare condition of our clothes. We were to have dresses. Oh, that beautiful material of the most gorgeous pastel colors, soft blue, pink, yellow, green, and mauve. Uh, mine was a lovely pink. We felt almost reluctant to wear the dresses, but we needed them. The, there certainly was no special occasion in the offering for which to save them. After the work was over, 
We bathed, then put on our dresses, but we changed back into our work suits for sleeping. We were careful with our dresses, but the time came when they had to be washed. The wash water turned white from the enormous amount of seizing in the, or sizing in the material. Our lovely crisp-looking dresses turned to pieces of cheesecloth and the kind that definitely needed ironing. But the colors were still bright, without slips, and in the sun we looked like cadaverous spiders draped in sheer colorful webs. With each washing, the material became more sheer, so those of us without slips wore our dresses over our work suits. Then came the shoes. Dump trucks arrived late one afternoon, spewing out white canvas tennis shoes into piles on the ground. Pick a pair, we were told as the trucks made a circle around us and left. Shoes! Shoes! echoed and re-echoed throughout the camp area. Women and children came running from every direction, and a free-for-all began. The shoes weren't tied in pairs, nor were they dumped according to size. If the Japanese had scrambled them as a prank, it backfired. They could never have guessed the fun and laughter the jumble brought to isolated, war-weary women and children. It became a game. There were more than 1,600 women and children frantically pawing through 3,200 tennis shoes, each trying to find a pair that fit. Find, finding a, a single shoe that fit, we put it on and wore it. The game then was to find its mate. That was something else. One of the ladies finally settled for two shoes for the right foot. She put them on and asked with a grin if I thought they looked all right. Well, I answered, you'd better hang on to them. You'll probably never find another pair like them. This started us giggling. She looked so ridiculous with two right feet. We became so weak from laughing, laughing that we had to sit down on the ground. Others joined in the infectious laughter. I think she kept her laughing shoes. <laughs> they were always good for a laugh whenever she put them on. I never found a mate for my right shoe, so I left it on the ground. There were tug-of-war, uh, some name-calling, and a few real uh, Donnybrooks. Two people wanting the same shoe, but all the confusion was a great release of anxiety, and most left the field of conflict the best of friends. Even if we didn't walk off in high-fashion footwear, it had been a wonderful afternoon. Planes were still flying out toward the west mornings and returning in the afternoons, though no sound of bombings or anti-aircraft fire could be detected. An increasing number of Japanese vehicles and visitors were in and out of camp. The visitors were all officers. We were intrigued. After the day's work was finished and we had eaten and bathed, some very anxious discussions took place as we tried to guess the significance of these activities as they related to us. Is it possible they are planning to move us elsewhere? Could be. They are certainly doing nothing about new barracks. Would they be planning a new offensive? 
That's possible. Do you remember last year? It was just like this. Months of air raids, of course. They didn't bomb us, but the raids stopped. The planes left and nothing more happened until three months ago. Well, as far as we know, there haven't been any recent raids. True, but we don't even know whose planes those are that we hear. These visitors could be from some ships in harbor. Do you remember all those uh, Hajbizuken visits by Japan Japanese officers? No, I don't think they're uh, Hajbizuken. If they were, we'd be ordered out there to bow and scrape, uh, scrap to them while sprinkling the paths so they wouldn't get their boots dusty. It, is it possible that the war is over? Well, almost over? Don't get your hopes up. If it were nearing the end, we'd surely have had pamphlets to let us know instead of bombs. And besides, they would have been allowing letters from and to our husbands, and they would have done something about our food situation. Well, what about the dresses and shoes? Don't you think that was to make us more presentable when the Allies arrive? That This always kept the stack of suggestions. We would look down at our cheesecloth dresses, worn-out work sh uh, suits, and mismatched tennis shoes. Then a general, oh, definitely, which always elicited uh, laughter, Having discussed in the, this manner all the pros and cons of our situation, we moved inside. How much we all wanted to believe that it would not be long before we could swing wide the gate to the outside world and run free again, free from fear of the competitiae, from sickness and separation, from loved ones and death, but most of all from confinement, the loss of our liberty, our freedom to con contact the world beyond the barbed wire and the moat that was the most grievous loss of all turning our thoughts to the one who had sustained us thus far we prayed together and found rest and courage to face the future august slipped away then the long-awaited day came most of us were thinking when asked to assemble in the large open field where the memorial service had taken place. They're going to tell us we're going to be moved. Commander Yamajai and the second in command appeared in full dress uniform. Mr. Yamajai informed us that our Imperial Highness, the Emperor Hirohito, had announced by radio that the war was over and Japan had accepted the terms of the Potsdam Declaration for Unconditional Surrender. Mr. Yamajai had been in conference with the Australians in Makassar, as this area would be under the Australian Army of Occupation. Arrangements were being made for the internees of Kempeli to be evacuated to Makassar as soon as housing became available. Wives and families whose husbands were in Paripari would be given first priority. The rest would follow, as soon as possible, they asked our cooperation so that the evacuation could be expedited in an orderly manner. 
Mr. Yamajai thanked us, saluted, turned, and left. I have seen photos of the wild victory celebrations that took place in New York, San Francisco, and similar places when the announcement of v VJ Day was broadcast on the nation. Crowds singing, dancing, drinking, and kissing whomever in the broad, confetti-filled, brightly lit streets. It wasn't like that in Kampalai. We were not safe on home soil, nor outside the barbed wire, nor half a world away from the battlefields, some still wet with the blood of fathers or sons or brothers. We were still within our prison confines, still separated from our families. We had nearly four years behind us of total isolation from the rest of the world, wondering how that world had changed and who of our loved ones would would be left. There was not even a conquering soldier in sight who had come to set us free, whom we could thank, whose hands we could kiss and wet with our tears of gladness. The full import of what we had just heard would come later. It was a silent celebration of tears rolling down gaunt faces burned deeply with while laboring in the sun on roads, in rice fields, in pig pens, on coolie lines, loading and unloading trucks, emptying septic tanks, faces on which sorrow and suffering had etched their deep lines. For ours had been a silent war of waiting, and we had measured courage in simple endurance. There was no riotous drinking. There were these people were a people who had drunk deeply at the bitter waters of Mara from the cup of isolation, separation, and the loss of loved ones, a people whose thirsty souls had just savored the first few cool, refreshing drops of freedom. There was no happy songs filling the air, interspersed with shouts of victory, but I think the hosts of heaven must have hushed to hear the anthem of praise to our God and King, ascending from a thousand hearts or more, as our lips whispered, Thank you, Father, from the depths of our being, we thank you. There was no wild cavorting about, just a quiet moving to and fro among the people to clasp hands, to embrace, to whisper thank yous to those with whom friendship had been pledged in a mingling of blood, sweat, and many tears. Some drew back with eyes full of dread, they were the collaborators and the ones who had been unfaithful to their husbands. I had pity for them, but mostly I grieved for the children. Divorces and broken homes were inevitable. Next time, uh, part three of chapter nine.